Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Biblical theology, folks. That is what we do here at Theology Matters. We are so glad you... Join us in our month-long series we are doing on intelligent design, science, and the Bible. Uh, We're going to be having a great show today, folks. We're going to have Dr. Jonathan Sarfati from Creation 
Ministries International with us. We're going to be looking at his books, uh, Refuting Evolution 1 and 2, as well as uh, talking about his new book that just came out, uh, which is a commentary uh, on the book of Genesis 1 through 11. You guys don't want to miss this show. Dr. Sarfati has a, has a PhD in chemistry, uh, just a brilliant, brilliant guy. His work is, was absolutely instrumental uh, to me coming to Christ. Uh, when I was saved in probably 2004, uh, I got uh, familiar with his works, back the ones we're talking about tonight. Never in my life had I seen a Christian uh, just absolutely shred the arguments for Darwinian evolution using science, philosophy, and logic. And uh, since then, Dr. Sarfati has been my favorite creationist. You heard last week, as we were uh, interviewing Dr. Phil Fernandez, he said the same thing. Uh, Jonathan Sarfati is his favorite creation scientist. So stay with us uh, you know, for the next uh, in the next 25 minutes or so. We will bring him on. Uh, if you have not liked us on Facebook yet, you can go to Theology Matters with the Blues. And uh, if you go to our Facebook page there, you're going to see a lot of the episodes uh, that we've done. We've been doing the show now for over three years. And our focus really is theology uh, and apologetics. And we are unashamedly Protestant. And with that, that means uh, we also uh, like to do some debates. And we will uh, do shows with Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, etc. We've done several debates. Uh, with Roman Catholics, uh, every every October, we set aside the month to really look at the Protestant Reformation, and uh, we've done I think two or three debates now on sola scriptura. Uh, we did uh, last last October we did debates on the doctrine of justification as well, and uh, always a good time, folks. So this October, be ready. Third year in a row, we are going to focus on the Protestant Reformation. I'm trying to set up some stuff now uh, with some Catholic apologists to hopefully be able to have a good debate. Uh, always enjoy it. It's not, uh, I was going to say it's not contentious, but I mean there is tension there because, you know, two sides. And, you know, on our show it's it's not a circus. It's not a screaming match. We enjoy good, reasonable dialogue. So with that said, um, also just uh, as a reminder, we are going to be, uh, doing our apologetics conference uh, in the fall at Calvary Church. Now, folks, if you're not familiar with the apologetics conference that we do every year, uh, it's, it is absolutely the best one uh, in the nation. We do it every year, and people travel from all over the world to come to this event. I mean, it is absolutely phenomenal. And in there, you're, you're going to see guys like uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer, who we're going to be we're going to be having on the show soon, and uh, we're going to be look, we're going to be having. Uh, I'm not sure if Dembski or, or not is coming. He's came in the past. William Lane Craig has came in the past. Uh, it's always just an absolutely incredible time. So you guys don't want to miss our uh, apologetics conference put on by. Southern Evangelical Seminary. So be sure to join us if you're going to be around in the Charlotte area in October for that. Uh, it's going to be an absolutely uh, great event. 
uh, in the next couple of weeks here, we're going to be having um, some good guests with uh, um, Jay Warner Wallace is going to be on, and we're going to be looking at his new book, God's Crime Scene. And in that book, he really does a good job looking at arguments for the existence of God. And if you're not familiar with uh, J. Warner Wallace, he wrote the book uh, Cold Case Christianity. And uh, in that book, what it is is he is a uh, literally a cold case detective. And in this book, what he does is applies the same type of methods that he uh, has used in the past to look at crime scenes and, and figure out uh, who has done particular crimes it's with indirect evidence and applies the same kind of methods to the New Testament. And it's, it's very interesting to see uh, how he is able to demonstrate the reliability of the Bible, um, the accuracy of, this, of the scriptures, etc., and shows that you know you don't have to have direct evidence in order to make a, a very compelling case. And so we're going to have him on, and uh, like I say, it's an absolutely excellent, excellent book that he has written on that. Uh, and then we're going to have Dr. Uh, Stephen Meyer is going to be joining us on the show. We're going to be looking at his book, uh, Debating Darwin's Doubt. Now, Darwin's Doubt came out, uh, I want to say, a year or two ago, and uh, it was just, no, it was probably maybe up to three years ago, and uh, shots to, like, one of the uh, Amazon bestsellers and received a lot of of, lot of um, criticism, of course, uh, from a lot of evolutionists, and it was really a devastating book because in that, he looks at the Cambrian explosion and kind of shows a lot of the issues with um, evolutionary uh, kind of the, the paradigm there that certain things we sh really shouldn't expect to see if it happened as though a lot of the uh, uh, neo-Darwinian gradualists would say that it happened. And so debating Darwin's doubt is taking on a lot of the critics, and uh, in that, there's chapters from guys like Casey Luskin, uh, Douglas Axe, and others, and uh, in that, like I say, they really um, take the challenges on that they have been uh, kind of hit with, and uh, do a really good job, I think, showing that most of the criticisms that come out are really uh, just based on uh, misunderstandings of of what uh, the intelligent design position really is. And so he's going to be with us, and we're going to be looking at that. So you don't want to miss that. Um, we will also, uh, last week we had uh, Marcy, Dr. Marcy Davis from the Providence Classical School on, and she talked a little bit about uh, what they're going to be doing. And next, or September 3rd, I believe, we will be having their director of apologetics come on the show and uh, be able to spend some time with him and uh, just kind of hear what some of the stuff is that they're going to be doing and some of the stuff that they're going to be learning. Uh, really impressive so far as I've uh, kind of been looking through the curriculum. They definitely put a focus on 
apologetics and the need to study logic, and uh, it's it's really good stuff. So be sure to join us for that interview, and uh, we're going to put more information for those who are interested, and I'll uh, get that up there. But now I just want to bring on my good friend uh, Jordan, and I'll let him pronounce his, his last name because I'm sure I will butcher it. Um, uh, uh, but he is a Ratio Christi student and uh, at it was UNCC, and I wanted him just to share a little bit about his, his testimony. As you guys know, I like to bring someone on in the first 20, 30 minutes or so and just kind of have them talk about how apologetics and theology has helped guided their walk with the Lord. So, Jordan, are you there? I am here, Devin. Thank you for having me today. I appreciate you coming, my friend. I uh, rambled there for a little bit because my computer decided to uh, do a reboot in the middle of doing oh, the show, problem. and so I had no way to bring you on, so my apologies for that. But um, what, How do you pronounce your last name there, Jordan? My last name is uh, uh, pronounced uh, Kojima. Okay. okay. Talk to us a little bit. Uh, you're a student at... Um, I'm an incoming student, a graduate student at UNCC in this fall. Okay, and what were and, you uh, studying up there? Um, I'll be getting my master's in history, um, continuing my work in the field of history. Um, I got my undergraduate degree from uh, Queen's University of Charlotte, which is just down the road from uh, UNC Charlotte. Wonderful. What is uh, What's the climate like there at Queen's as far as... Uh... Christianity. I know they had uh, Richard Dawkins come there and speak, and and we went to that. But uh, what's the, what's the climate uh, like on Queens? Um, the climate is uh, very liberal. Um, at uh, PCUSA affiliated, um, the uh, chaplain she advocates very uh, liberal ideas about theology and Christianity, um, and. Uh, the campus itself seems to have adopted that policy in the administration as well. And so as a Russia Christie chapter has been difficult because um, when a university sponsors that kind of uh, thinking, it's very tough for a, shall we say, a more conservative-minded theology to uh, get a foothold in the campus. Right. Did you did you grow up in, the, in a Christian home, or um, how did you come um, to know the Lord? Um, yes, I did uh, grow up in a Christian home. My parents were late converts. Uh, they converted actually a few years after I was born. Um, we grew up in the, an evangelical free church in uh, the Chicagoland area. Um, okay. I accepted. I uh, became a Christian probably about the time I started high school, about 15. Um, I believe it was around that time, too. I uh, got baptized as well. Um, so my, my time in the okay. church has, uh, kind of been, uh, uh, you know, been pretty much involved. I've been involved my whole life. Uh, okay. Now, were you, were you always interested in, in apologetics and theology or how did you, how did you get involved in that? Um, sadly, no, I wasn't, uh, into theology and apologetics, um, for a long time, um, period of, in high school of, uh, I started to become very liberal politically as well as just ideologically uh, looking back. And uh, actually, that's when I began to question my Christian faith. Um, and that was probably about senior year of high school. 
um, after being taught by some liberal professors for or liberal teachers, excuse me, um, for a couple of years of high school. Um, you know, it, it's really tough. My my parents, I love them to death. I um, just didn't have the theological training, and also my church didn't provide a lot of apologetics either. And so you end up with the kid who's you know taught liberal things in school, but has a very is supposed to have a, or is uh, has hangs out with a bunch of conservative-minded folks. And so it tends to create a bit of controversy and conflict, um, maybe not publicly, but at least privately within myself it did. Um, and so apologetics didn't enter my life until probably sophomore year of college. Wow. So you're you're fairly new to, to the world of apologetics then. Um, yes, I, uh, I'm fairly new um, through uh, just actually I can uh, – it's interesting that you uh, say that. It's um, it was it was very much I would I use it hesitantly but very firmly that I believe it was God's providence that I was uh, got involved in Rosh Christie. Um, long story short, um, all of my ba- I made some bad decisions and senior year of high school and freshman year of college. Um, nothing like catastrophically like drugs or anything like that, but just um, morally questionable decisions and that sort of thing. Involved a relationship with a girl, and it all came to a head and kind of fell apart. And that's when I really began to question, uh, you know, what was my liberal thinking? Like, did it, it didn't seem to hold the answer that I needed. Um, but I wasn't sure about Christianity either. And uh, long story short, I, through again, as I mentioned before, God's providence, I ran into Caleb Litter, Caleb Beard, um, another fellow graduate of Queens, who is another great Christian guy. He's actually going to SCS right now, and. Um, uh, through sheer happenstance, uh, met him and he invited me to Rosh Christie, and that's sort of how my uh, adventure in a, into apologetics began. What has apologetics done for you as far as uh, helping you uh, answer some of those those big questions? Maybe maybe even even take a few minutes to share with us what were some of the uh, questions you had, had regarding the, the Christian faith. Okay. Um, one of the big ones was I, I was a history major, as I, I think I mentioned in my introduction. Uh, I'm a history major, and uh, I, I started to question the historicity of the scripture. Um, you know, is it trustworthy? Is it very simple, very simple questions? But um, now that I know it, but back then it was quite difficult. Is uh, you know, w- you know, why why do we only have the books of the Bible that we have? Why were ones kept out? Um, that was one of my big questions. Um, I wouldn't say I was vehemently opposed. I wasn't exactly an atheist per se, but these yeah. doubts definitely kept kept me uh, questioning my faith and uh, thinking. The other big problem I guess I had with Christianity was a philosophical one, which was the problem of evil. Um, that was large. Um, in a in my personal life, the problem of evil. I was struggling with some things that had happened in my life, and also just kind of, and that also led to me questioning kind of just the general problem of evil philosophically and i just didn't understand how christianity answered that at all and uh, the answers i did receive from certain christians i did ask um didn't seem to quite cut it at least in my mind sure so how does how does apologetics kind of help you in your walk with christ um well it's definitely been an encouraging and stabilizing factor in my faith for sure it um it has allowed me to uh, remain firm under pressure in some circumstances and 
Uh, also, I guess one of the benefits too that I've seen and I enjoy this is encouraging Christians when Christians themselves uh, ask questions, whether that be in like I went to a Bible study or Sunday school class and someone just asked a question and, you know, be like, you know, I, I, I know some, here's my take on that, my apologetics take on it. Um, I also know some authors too. So it, and just in that sense, it, it, it's, it's so, it's very much worth studying just to be able to encourage the body as well as, uh, as again, as, as before, strengthen my own faith. Now, have you, how, how has it been as you've had conversations with, uh, with your classmates, have you guys? Uh, do you feel more confident in that uh, sharing sharing your faith and doing evangelism? Um, I certainly do. I, I'll be honest and say that I I don't have the that I'm I'm not well practiced at it. But um, I, when I have, it's certainly been uh, a lot easier knowing apologetics. It's also been uh, uh, comforting to know when I have done it. I've done it with people that are more mature than I and know more and understand more than me. Um, as far as Queens and Russia Christie and its efforts at Queens, it's, um, it's difficult because um, part of the liberal ideology is very much kind of this empathy that uh, just what you believe it's this personal thing. And so on a surface level and in a, in a one-to-one conversation, it's very difficult to get a person to start asking questions because it's very much, well, that's good for you, but not for me. And so you kind of have to find a way to engage them, I guess, in a different sense. Right, right. Uh, what are what are some of the apologetics? Uh, what, are, what are some of the things you guys have gone over at Ratio Christie uh, down there? Are you guys doing a a book or <clears throat> study or what have you guys been studying? <laughs> um, uh, this past semester, we did uh, um, actually Jay Warner Wallace's that Cold Case Christianity. Um, oh, we, uh, we got rather busy. Well, it was very difficult to have Rashi Christie because Matt, Matt Schmidt, our chapter director, had his uh, second child. But um, um, we still had our meetings, and we, you know, we worked through it and talked about it. Um, the good part about Queen's Rashi Christie is that it's very small. Well, I guess good in the sense that it's small, and most of the people there are um, very passionate about apologetics. They are Christians. And so on that level, it's it's nice because we all know what we believe. We're kind of all on what the same page in that front. Um, but again, it's a small group, so it's tough because it's, we're supposed to be an outreach group as well. And so um, finding or getting the since we only have small numbers, it's very hard to you know make time out of all of our schedules to you know, make an active effort um, and just give smaller pool of resources. But um, I suppose that's the other benefit too is. And I'm you know, pleased that the Lord had uh, allowed it to happen this way. Is uh, Matt's put an emphasis on theology of late? Um, before we did uh, Jay Warner Wallace's Cold Case Christianity, um, Matt really went through some basic uh, Reformed theology. Just this is our classical theology as well. Just kind of the basics. Here are here's why. Here are scripture verses that support this idea. Um, and so in that sense, it really helped. Um, me on a fundamental level with my faith and uh, kind of um, structuring it and uh, making me able to think about it more properly, I would say. Sure. What are, so kind of in the future, what are what are your plans? What is it you're wanting to, to do? Are you wanting to continue uh, training apologetics or maybe do it uh, 
kind of professionally getting into ministry or, or what is your 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 goals there in the future? Oh, I would love those. I'd love to do that. Um, but at the moment, currently, um, just financially and the way things are with my with, with me, uh, I'm still a history major. And so uh, it's uh, right now I'm focusing on finishing my master's, obviously, at UNCC. And I will be um, trying to actually go into the museum field or my second option would be going becoming a professor. But... Um, Part of the reason why I'm having to be slightly more careful with apologetics, at least in academia, is it's very frowned upon, that kind of thinking. And so it's not that I'm trying to hide who I am. It's rather that I'm just trying to be careful not to burn all the bridges before I get there. So, um, <laughs> oh, that's, that's, way, that's wise. I'd, I'd love to certainly uh, find a way to incorporate apologetics more actively um, once I'm able to you know, meet more people and, and that sort of thing. So um, definitely I've been kind of reading theology on my own a little bit and asking, uh, I even called you the other day for advice about something. But um, yeah, just asking people I respect, people who know more than I, um, for advice about theology, evangelism, and uh, all sorts of subjects. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we, you know, very, very proud of you. It's really awesome to see what uh, the Lord is doing and, what the Lord is doing with Ratio Christie, and uh, glad that uh, it's been able to, to really be a service to you, and um, it's 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 good. I mean, it's um, it's exactly what we exist for is to see those who are uh, you know have had questions or in those uh, type of atmospheres where Christianity is uh, kind of frowned upon, so to speak. Uh, it's good for people to see uh, the need for that. So. Jordan, really appreciate you uh, coming on and uh, look forward to seeing you this semester, and we certainly uh, wish you the best of luck. Well, thank you so much for having me today. And, it's, uh, it, again, I'm just happy that my if my story can help at least one person. That's um, always what I pray and hope for. Absolutely, yep. All right, my friend, we will talk again soon, and appreciate you coming on the show. Again, Devin. All right, God bless. All right, folks, we're going to take a uh, short break, and when we come back, we should have Dr. Jonathan Sarfati on. Again, we're going to be looking at his book, uh, both of his books, Refuting Evolution and Refuting Evolution 2. And we're going to be looking at uh, a lot of the specific issues uh, that sometimes come up within the uh, argument over creation and evolution. So we'll go ahead and take a break and be back in a few minutes with Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. Stay with us. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Jim, are scribal variations in the Gospels a problem for us? Well, that's the claim of a lot of skeptics. And uh, this idea that you've got so many uh, places in the uh, Gospels, let's say, where uh, scribes over the centuries have made a small change, an alteration, changed a word, maybe even changed more than one word, changed maybe a passage. Uh, so are these a problem? We really can't trust any of it then because we've got some small variations can't along throw the way. It all out. And I think that this is part of a problem of people not understanding how crime scenes are working. There's actually a helpful analogy, I think, in crime scenes because you never get to a crime scene that's not messy. I mean, I wish I could go in and I open the door to the crime scene and I get there and everything there is a piece of evidence that I am now going to use to find the suspect. But the reality is that uh, crime scenes are filled with artifacts mm. and evidence. 
artifacts or some things are in the crime scene before the crime even starts. Or, let's say it's paramedics who rushed to the scene to save the victim and couldn't save the victim, but now you've got blood smears based on the paramedics, you've got their wrapping materials for the bandages, you've got the sutures, all this stuff's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Well, those aren't pieces of evidence, those are artifacts. And if I was the detective working the case, and it was your loved one who was the case who actually was murdered, and I walked in and I said, you know, I'd like to help you, but there's a bunch of artifacts in this scene. I'm sorry, I can't help you. You'd say, well, wait a minute. That, you're being derelict of duty. You, you have a duty to, to separate out the artifacts so that you have enough evidence to make your case. Mm -hmm. And we do this in trial all the time. We have a technique, a process we use to separate the artifacts out so we know what is evidential. And if our uh, technique is valuable, we actually can identify right away. Well, I can tell that that's an artifact. That's a smear from the uh, paramedics. You have the knee did that. You can see right away. Well, it turns out the textual critics do the same thing with the Gospels. They have a certain process in place that helps them identify what is an artifact. And even the skeptic who says, I see four artifacts, apparently is using the same process, the process that successfully tells us to return to an original. I can pull that stuff out, and I can return faithfully to the reliable original, although the scene is messy. And that's what we're going to do here. We're going to use the same process of identifying late entries, comparing documents over the years. The more copies we have, the more pictures I have of the scene. If I had a picture every five seconds of the scene, I'd be able to go back and get to the original. If I've got manuscripts that span a course of years, I've got a lot of manuscripts, I can compare these to one another and get back to the original. The same process we use in crime scenes, we can use in the Gospels. Thanks, Jim. What is something that computers and humans have in common, which constantly needs upgrading in computers, but not in humans? The answer is software. You may not have realized you have software, but inside the nucleus of each of your cells, a program is written in the form of 3 billion DNA letters. Intelligent programmers write computer software, but what about living things? Evolutionists tell us that the information in the first living cell just appeared by itself with no intelligent input required. But is that possible? The answer is a resounding no. Even one of Australia's best-known scientists, Paul Davies, conceded that there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And perhaps that's why, in a New Scientist article, he lamented, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. What is something that computers and humans have in common, which constantly needs upgrading in computers, but not in humans? The answer is software. You may not have realized you have software, but inside the nucleus of each of your cells, a program is written in the form of 3 billion DNA letters. Intelligent programmers write computer software, but what about living things? Evolutionists tell us that the information in the first living cell just appeared by itself with no intelligent input required. But is that possible? The answer is a resounding no. Even one of Australia's best-known scientists, Paul Davies, conceded that there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And perhaps that's why, in a New Scientist article, he lamented, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. 
All right, folks, welcome back to Theology Matters with the Palouz, and we're going to be looking at refuting evolution, and we are trying to get Dr. Sarfati uh, on the line right now. Uh, as we do that, though, I wanted to pray, play a little bit of a promo uh, video for Ratio Christi, is, uh, which we were just talking about here with Jordan, and uh, kind of talks a little bit about what, what Ratio Christi is, what we do, and why it's needed on campus. And uh, we'll get Dr. Sarfati on the line, and we will be back to discuss his books, Refuting Evolution 1 and 2. If I could have a moment of your time, I would like to bring to your attention a very serious issue. The intellectual viability of the Christian worldview is being challenged in the classrooms, by other students, and even the professors. This is accomplished by anti-religious campus organizations and gatherings. Look in a mirror and understand the delusion of Christianity. Once you can see what is going on, the hope is that you will be able to start healing your delusion. With each healing, we make our world a better place. Best-selling books by famous atheistic professors geared toward college students. speeches promoting militant atheism. These people, the reflective people, they know, they know there aren't any good reasons to believe in God. We've got them on the run. We're almost there. We're almost there. All done with one goal in mind. Make religion look stupid while recruiting students to the secular worldview. We call the world's most famous atheist, Richard Dawkins. I can't tell you how excited I am to see students taking up the banner of secularism and the secular student alliance is carrying the banner forward and it is very very exciting to all of us in the movement to see young people involved young people involved and it's working statistics show that up to 80 percent of professing christians will walk away from their faith while attending secular colleges and universities many within the first year they simply are not intellectually prepared to face the onslaught of even the most basic objections to the Christian worldview. How do you know that Jesus is the only way? All Hello. right, folks. Um, hey, Dr. Zarfati, how are you? Hey there, you had the wrong number on the itinerary, uh, but I managed to find the previous uh, um, uh, show we did, the right number. Uh, okay. 3097, 3907, right? So, Right, my apologies. That's why <laughs> I've got the wrong number. Anyway, uh, ready to, yeah. to, to do whatever you want to do. All I right, I appreciate you. Using, uh, one and two, that's fine. Great, great. We're very uh, oh. very glad to have you on. Let me kind of answer oh, this yeah. a little bit here, just so people yeah, know who you are. Do you want me are. to have a speakerphone on or not? Uh, whatever, whatever works for you. It's a matter of whatever, whatever is best for your radio show. Is what I'm thinking I of. Can, um, yeah, I can hear you okay, like this. It's a speaker, okay. Yeah, I can, I can hear you fine. So okay, as long as the radio audience can hear it, then I'll keep it like this then. Yep, absolutely. So, just to kind of give a little bit of a uh, introduction here, um, Dr. Sarfati is with Creation Ministries. Uh, international, and he is the author of several books, uh, including Revo uh, Refuting Evolution 1 and 2, and is the uh, co-author of the Creation Answers book, 
refuting compromise, uh, the greatest hopes on earth. We did a show with him uh, before on that, and just a lot of good books. We'll also talk a little bit about his uh, commentary that he he just did. And, um, yeah, uh, Dr. Sir Fadi, are you doing all right today? Well, thank you for having me on your show again. It was fun last time. Absolutely. Yeah, last time we looked a little bit at uh, at your book, uh, The Greatest Folks on Earth. Talk to us a little bit about uh, the, the first book you've done here, Refuting Evolution. Was this the first book you, you had ever written? It was, actually, because you might remember, I know it's going back a fair way, but I think about 1998, the uh, National Academy of Sciences uh, produced this teacher's guidebook sent to all the schools about how do you indoctrinate your kids into evolution with all the things like how do you answer a creationist kid in your class and um, all this sort of thing. And so my book was designed as a point-by-point refutation of that National Academy of Sciences book, which means we're, we're refuting the top evidences they could produce. And it became the largest selling creation book of all time, apart from the Bible, of course. Wow, that is, that is uh, really amazing. I remember when I first, uh, in fact, I still have the first copy that I ever bought of that book, and uh, oh. absolutely uh, amazing. You know, you know, Doctor Phil Fernandez, right? Sorry, what do you say? Sorry, uh, Doctor Phil Fernandez. Do you, do you know him? He's a apologist out there in Washington. I'm afraid I don't. Sorry. Okay. Okay. He's. Uh, I think he spoke with you before at uh, one of the creation conferences. He was a speaker, and he's. Okay. I had him on last week, and he was saying you're you're his absolute favorite creationist. So uh, you got a lot oh, of nice. so. a lot of people that love your work. So. Well, thank you. Uh, chapter one: facts and biases. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, because I think a lot of people have the idea that scientists are just these uh, you know logic machines that are just neutral, mm-hmm. no biases. Talk to us about that. I think it's almost the best place, the first place we have to start to make uh, people aware there are, it really is a clash of two rival worldviews, two religious worldviews, if you like. Uh, One um, is dogmatic materialism that says that matter is all there is, and evolution is a logical deduction from materialism. I mean, if there is no creator who made things, then things must have made themselves, and that's basically what evolution is all about. Um, so at the base of it, it it's um, people have their biases, and their biases in the world, their worldview, um, determine how they go, are going to interpret the um, data of nature. And then I yeah, talk about so, things like uh, uh, real science that put me on the moon and cures diseases, about things that we can test and observe in the present, while evolution and creation are claims about history. You might call them historical science, but they're still claims about history. They are one-off things, one-off events that either happened or alleged to happen, and they're not happening today. So it's really uh, two rival worldviews about history involved, and that needed to be set out right at the front of the book. That's good. A lot of people, I think, especially today, uh, where I do stuff at... uh, like Winthrop University, for example, on the universities, uh, it's this idea kind of of scientism, that you can't know anything outside of outside of science. And so it's interesting, mm-hmm. you know, as you say, we've really got to look at the, at the presuppositions because a lot of times materialism just discounts any, any possibility of a miracle, right? And I think this, this scientism, as you've described, is actually self-refuting as well because you can't know anything except for what's 
uh, revealed by science. Well, okay, prove that statement by science. You can't. Yeah. So therefore, that statement is, is itself unknowable, which is why it's a, you're cutting off the branches sitting on uh, to hold this view. But I think most of these people are not very logical. Right. How do we get people to question the presuppositions? How do we get them to um, kind of examine them so at least they're open to looking at the claims? Well, I think, first of all, uh, the uh, the first battle is to make it clear that it's not science versus religion. It's science versus science, and it's a science of, uh, as understood by one worldview against a science as understood by another worldview. So to make people aware that it's a clash of worldviews, not, not science versus religion, and then to show there's a huge cognitive dissonance that evolutionists must have uh, in thinking that um, nothing became something in the Big Bang and that um, life came from non-living chemicals, even though that has never been seen on land or sea, um, and that somehow uh, immoral ma uh, amoral matter can become uh, moral agents like humans. So there's a huge number of... of um, contrary positions and it's important to make people realize that evolution has these um, insoluble problems and that's good find faith. yeah what are maybe you can talk a little bit about what are some of the uh, different positions within uh, Christianity on the creation evolution issue I know I know now it seems like with the biologos movement and that the theistic evolution seems to be gaining grounds in a lot of uh, seminaries and that but okay, as far as um, there are two main worldviews, there are subdivisions within those worldviews, but either things were made or they weren't made. Those are the two worldviews. And really, um, theistic evolution, I can't tell the difference between that and atheistic evolution. They just put God in there somewhere. But for all practical purposes, there's no real difference. Uh, and why uh, Christians would want to adopt an essentially anti-Christian, anti-God worldview and try and tack on onto that, I really think is is um exercise in futility. And the atheists are not impressed by that. Yeah, what are some of the things I know Richard Dawkins has kind of uh spoke out before on that, right? Kind of laughing at theistic evolutionists. Oh and and P Z Meyer, P Z you call them, don't you? P Z Myers, uh you got Jerry Coyne. None of them have any respect for the people who want to uh tack God onto evolution. Darwin had no respect for such people. So they think they're going to win the scientists over by basically conceding um, all the, everything to the the work the materialists, except um, somehow a faith position that God is behind it all somehow. And what do you see as some of the God would create by evolution when it's actually a very wasteful, cruel, inefficient process? The death of the unfit, when the Bible is very clear, death is a result of sin, and Jesus's death paid for sin, which reinforces that. And the Bible makes that connection in First Corinthians 15, for instance, where Adam's death is is why Jesus came to die for our sin and then rise again from the dead. Yeah, so I, I've even seen it's uh, a lot of people really questioning even a historical uh, Adam and Eve seem to be up for grabs nowadays, and that would seem like you say to really do a lot of violence to uh, the biblical text, wouldn't it? Well, then you wonder, well, okay, Luke, the great historian, chapter 3, he traces Jesus all the way back up to Adam, who is then called the son of God and not the son of an ape, okay, so... 
Um, you throw out Luke 3 as well. Uh, Paul in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 clearly accept Adam as a real person who's the ancestor of everyone else on earth. Um, so where do you stop? I mean, what happens to sin? So is sin just somehow um, a, a vestige of our evolutionary history instead of disobedience to God? I mean, uh, it, I, I, everything is, is, is up for grabs. Let, let me ask you this, Dr. Sarfati, with Chapter sure. 1, and I know there's there's differences among Christians when it mm-hmm. comes to apologetic methodology. Kind of yeah. your own uh, personal view, do you believe that we start with the Bible, or do you believe we can have uh, – when I say common ground, I don't mean people are morally neutral. I don't mean that, but I mean um, kind of like, a, like the classical apologetics method. How do you view that? Well, okay, I mean, that's got a long, um, honorable history. Uh, and But the thing is, what, we, what our aim is to show is that there is a worldview there. And, in fact, if we uh, have the biblical worldview, we find that other things uh, make so much more sense in, um, in science and in ethics and everything else. We find a worldview constructed by the Bible makes so much more sense than a worldview constructed by... Um, Materialism, that's one thing. Right, and, uh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of uh, what we do, you, I mean, for instance, my book By Design almost is, is uh, uh, more on the classical apologetics uh, lines of things, and Christianity for Skeptics, the same sort of thing. So, um, But I do think uh, underlying it, there is a, pre, a presuppositional um, belief that the Bible does produce a self-consistent um, um Set of axioms, which from which you can deduce all sorts of of true premises about the world, and that's why science grew up in a Christian framework. So, people want to use science uh, by itself. Well, where does science come from? Unless you have um, a prior belief that the world is orderly, which you get from the uh, the divine lawmaker concept of the Bible. That's good. Yeah. So the major branches of science was kind of discovered by. Uh, most of them were Bible-believing Christians, right? They were. I mean, this began in the, in the Middle Ages, which are wrongly called the Dark Ages, but this whole sort of Christianized worldview uh, got science off the ground in the Middle Ages and then continued and, and really had great leaps forward during the Reformation times. Yeah, that's that's good. Chapter 2, you talk about variation and natural selection verse, uh, versus evolution. Uh, a lot of Christians, they get uncomfortable. They think if you accept natural selection, then that means you've got to buy into uh, the whole enchilada, so to speak. Talk to us a little bit about what you mean there in there, chapter there's, two. You know, uh, for right about chapter, first of all, is that the main uh, evolutionary technique has always been bait and switch. They find examples of change and then call that evolution, and then say, well, evolution is proven, and then bait and switch. The term evolution now becomes this idea of goo to you via the zoo. Um, ah. Creationists, even before Darwin, have never disputed change. Creationists before Darwin understood natural selection as a reality. So natural selection and variation are not unique to the evolutionary worldview, and it's, a, it's time for Christians to um, take back what is not rightfully the um, property of the evolutionists. Um, creationists before Darwin thought of natural selection. Creationists, even before that, uh, realized that um, the number of animals we have today 
the number of varieties is far greater than that on the Noah's Ark, and therefore there must have been a process of variation to get them from the uh, ark creatures, and even processes that we now call speciation. And, and so why should we the evolutionists take um, monopoly of those terms? Yeah, you know, I, I, I sometimes hear a Christian's uh, creationists, I think they're well-meaning, but uh, they'll say things yeah. like, we've never seen uh, a new species form. And that's that's not true, is it? And, and that would actually... Not. I mean, that in, be, book, uh, in my book, I talk about examples of very rapid species, because if the biblical account is true, and all of us, all the animals uh, descend, all the land animals are descendants of creatures on the ark, uh, then the speciation must have happened very quickly and not over millions of years. So, in fact, the rapidity of speciation has taken evolutionists by surprise, but it should never have taken creationists by surprise. Yeah, and I think a lot of the – sometimes the issue, I think, comes people uh, confuse that God made – they'll say everything after their own species instead of after yeah. their own time. Can you, can you explain a little bit about the difference between – uh, the two and why it's important we get our language right. Well, the problem is is that the the word in for kind is is clearly broader than what we now call species. There's no reason to equate the biblical kinds with the modern species. Now, a species is defined by a group of organisms that can interbreed among themselves, but not with a different species. Okay, so it's about reproductive isolation. Uh, but uh, clearly, some species are descended from uh, the same kind of creature. I mean, um, for instance, the tigers and lions are classified as different species, but you can actually interbreed them and produce a liger or a tigon. In fact, if you, you can actually trace uh, interbreeding, hybridization from the tiger down to the, the pussycat, your pet pussycat. Right. Which, so I mean, I mean, not directly, but you've got things like like a tiger will, will mate with a lion, a lion can mate with a leopard, a leopard can mate with something a, bit, a little smaller version, and so on. You can actually trace a line, which shows that all the cats come from a created cat kind and diversified after the cat pair on the ark um, diversified. And the thing is, it's a case of God creating a lot of genetic variation, and that variation has become sorted out into different species. But the uh, the initial variation, God created a lot of variation so the descendants could adapt to a wide variety of environments. And I have an illustration of that with um, animals adapting to cold, for instance, with um God creating information for short fur and long fur, and just happens if, you, if, if the weather gets cold, the information for short fur will be very good protective, and it means only the short fur things are going to survive that. So these examples of variation and selection are always examples of, of culling parts of the original created variation out. Sure. One of the one of the big ones they use is that you've got this in your book here: the antibiotic and pesticide uh, resistance. Yeah. Talk about well, that. Well, kids were being taught by that and by that uh, that teacher's guidebook. I had to explain that even those examples are always breaking things. It's like, like you might call a scorched earth policy. Now, in World War II, sometimes the French resistance would blow up the bridges in France to stop the German troops coming over or to take the troops with them. Okay, but it's still destroying the French economy. 
as necessary right. in wartime. Now, the thing is, sometimes uh, this sort of scorched earth policy can actually help you. It's still a downward change. And one example, um, a mutation can destroy a, a pump in the bacterial cell wall, and that pump would pump in the antibiotics. So you're pumping in your own executioner. Now, if the, the mutation disabled that pump, it would no longer pump in that antibiotic. So it's a case of it's a downhill change. It just happens to be beneficial in uh, with the antibiotic. But in the wild, those germs could not compete with the wild germ because they've got defective pumps. So even these supposed examples of of beneficial changes, they're beneficial. They help the organism, but they are still breaking something and not making something, which is what evolution wow. requires is new information that makes something new and not breaking something that already exists. Now, I remember that interview with uh, Richard Dawkins where he was asked mm -hmm. about uh, if there was new information, and uh, he was, I think he was silent for about 21 seconds. Oh, yeah, that was quite <laughs> an embarrassment. He really still has not answered that question. Yeah, so that's a key that's question right. for evolution because um, you, you humans have about three gigabytes of information, very highly compressed information. The simplest cell has about 600 kilobytes of information. Uh, so how do we go from 600 kilobytes to 5,000 times more that we have? That is a point. Wow. If evolution is true, you should see loads of these changes that increase the information content, and we, and we are seeing instead changes that decrease information content. And the examples they present in that uh, teacher's guidebook and all the biology textbooks, they are, they are downhill changes. Yeah, I, I think what I really like about your, your work is you're not just um, – I mean, yeah, we – believe the Bible is true, but the, the it's really, you, you show that uh, it's really bad science uh, to hold on to evolution theory. It's not just bad theology, but it's bad science. And that's exactly what we expect, too, that um, because I believe what's in God's world is going to agree with what's in God's word, and therefore I expect any, any claims contrary to the Bible to be bad science. That's right. Darwin's finches, that's kind of uh, the one that they, they bring up a lot. Maybe talk a little bit about that and how that was used uh, sure. as a bait and switch and, and how we would explain that as creationists. Well, again, you can imagine God creating the finches with a variety of different genes, information for different types of beak types. I mean, some beak, uh, for genes for thin beaks, some genes for thick beaks. Now, if you're coming, if there's finches on an island where all you have to eat are hard nuts and seeds, then the ones with thin beaks cannot eat. Only the ones with the thick beaks can actually crunch the nuts and, and eat enough food. So on that island, all you're going to get in the end is the ones with thick beaks because the thin beak ones will die out. Okay, but the information for the thickness of the beak was already there in the finches. So we're certainly seeing natural selection, but we're not seeing evolution because we're not seeing anything new. And it seems that the, um, there's something in the finches that the change is also cyclical as well. There seems to be some sort of way that they can uh, they cycle depending on the environment. So again, the information is already built into the finches. Evolution requires something new that wasn't there before. And they kind of oscillate back and forth depending on the the season of rain, right? Whether well, it's wet or I mean, dry. Well, that's what um, has been shown. What what the the researchers and the finches admit that there's not really seen any, any real direction 
as opposed to cyclic changes. How how do we um, when it comes to the ark? I know that Noah's ark. This is going to play somewhat of a role. You have this in your chapter as well. Um, would, how, how many kinds would we say that uh, there are? And would we? St- I know people will cry and say there's a problem with getting all these animals on the ark. How does well, that? First of all, you... no sea creatures have to be passengers because the floods are not going to hurt. It might well, it would destroy sea creatures, and that's why we've got fossils. But uh, sea creatures don't have to be on board as passengers. Some will survive um, a flood, and it's only the land vertebrate animals that have to be on board as passengers. Uh, insects are not included because uh, they could survive off the rafts, uh, floating uh, pumice and floating vegetation rafts and all that. Um, and when you work out the number of kinds, it would not exceed uh, about 8,000 different uh, pairs of animals. I mean, I think that's being generous because the cat family, as I said, seems to be uh, they can trace hybridizations all across the cat family. So all the... A cat family we have today uh, could be represented by one felid kind on the ark. So I say there's probably uh, less than um, 8,000 pairs of animals have to be on board the ark. And when it comes to things like dinosaurs, the dinosaurs didn't have to be fully grown. We now know from the, the growth rings on dinosaur bones that they, they went through a teenage growth spurt. Yeah, so, so some I mean, people presumably, are... since God is the one who brought the, the animals to Noah, he'd bring the dinosaurs on before they went through the growth spurt. Yeah, and I know some Christians would, uh, they would reject that dinosaurs went on the ark. That's not How possible. Do you, uh... um, if, if, the, if we accept the fossil record was mostly caused by the flood, there are dinosaur fossils, which means they were, they were living at the time of the flood, and God had told Noah take two of every kind of land animal. So Noah must have taken dinosaurs on if they were living at the time. I mean, that's not an acceptable solution uh, that what was proposed there. I'm not saying you did anything that that was not acceptable. No. Right, right. No, I I fully believe that they that they did go on the ark, but it is kind of some weird logic that they that they use to uh, to get out of that uh, or try to. Uh, it, it, I think they're posing it as a bigger problem than it actually really uh, really would be. So, which after I wrote the refuting evolution books, uh, the first editions anyway, uh, this this uh, information about dinosaur growth uh, um, patterns actually um, appeared after my books. So I mean, oh, okay. even before then, we we know that dinosaurs started off life as eggs no bigger than a football. So even before that knowledge, uh, there was we realized that dinosaurs weren't always very big. Yeah, yeah. Now when it comes to, because I know some are going to say that the flood was uh, was local, therefore you wouldn't have to take uh, take as many animals. What, what, how is your response yeah. to, to that? Well, the thing is, when you look at the size of the ark, the ark was plenty big for all the uh, kinds that we know needed to be on board. So, in fact, uh, why would you build such a huge thing if you have not that many animals? And also, why build it at all? Do you just migrate to a place not affected by the flood? I mean, a lot did. You mean, the angels rescued him, and he got, got out of Sodom. That was all there was to it. Okay? Uh, so there's no need to build an ark to escape a local flood. It makes no sense. Okay, and speaking of of uh, Sodom, um, the rainbow symbol has been hijacked, of course, by the Sodomite movement. But the original rainbow says, "I am not going to flood the whole earth again. I'm not going to do this again." Now, if it was a local flood, well, God, there's obviously been many local floods since then. 
Yeah. So did God promise never to send another local flood? Yeah, so there's good biblical it's, reasons. Uh, it's not logical. And, and the, the language of the flood account is so emphatic. They repeated all um, all the high heavens under the entire, all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. Everything outside the ark perished. Yeah, only those people and things on, on board the ark survived. You see, there's over repetition of the universal language points to. I don't know how you can make it any clearer that it's a global flood. Yeah, I, I don't know either. It seems to be uh, clear. I, th- I think uh, it seems to be that a lot of people reject that it's a global flood, and, and I'm not trying to be uncharitable to them, but it seems as though they, because they're looking at modern geology, I guess, and what they're, the interpretations of modern geology, and yeah. and uh, maybe you could talk about that. What would a worldwide flood do to the supposed geological column? Well, it means uh, the, uh, that the, the column could be produced very much more quickly than people think so, because... Um, in in uh, physical processes, you can always trade intensity for time. So if you have a hugely intense process like a global flood, you don't need lots of time to produce the rock layers and the erosion that we see. And I think a global flood is a key for realizing why you don't need millions of years because a global flood would have done so much work. Right. I think we don't realize how, how destructive and constructive a flowing water can be. I mean, each cubic meter of water weighs a ton. Wow. A thousand kilograms, wow. to use uh, metrics, okay? Uh, so when you've got a globe covering floods, uh, there's a huge amount of work that's going to be done um, depositing as the flood uh, um, moves up onto the continent, deposits, and then as the flood runs off, it erodes. That's a sort of a basic pattern there. So it would do an awful amount of, of, of work. And when you think of some of the structures we have, it points to a huge volume of water once covering the earth, including Mount Everest, because they've got marine limestone on the summit of Mount Everest. It was once covered by water, clearly. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I know Dr. Steve Austin has done a lot of work with Mount St. Helens and oh, very really showing what uh, what work can, what, what volcanoes and water and all that can really do it can definitely do some serious serious damage so and done work on the grand canyon as well it's a really good outstanding stuff yes yeah chapter chapter three uh you talk about the Mm -hmm. the missing link so what is the transitional fossil problem there well, see, Darwin realized if, if one thing is changing into a different kind of creature, there should be bits showing that change. There should be intermediate forms which are sort of half one thing and half another thing. You see, if a, a, um, a reptile in terms of a bird, there should be things that are sort of halfway between a leg and a wing. Uh, and yet he was very frustrated that we don't have these um, innumerable um, intermediate links in the fossil record. There's a whole length of the chain I'm missing. Uh, and uh, that's, he recognized that as a problem, and he thought, well, maybe the fossil record is not very complete. But when you look at the fossil record, you find it is very complete. Um, when you compare the fossil things to what we have today, it's very complete. And the only evidence for incompleteness is the lack of the intermediate form. So it becomes an argument in a circle. 
What was the uh, kind of the discussion or debate, I should say, between uh, Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Dawkins on this issue? Well, said they, they sort of joined forces to, to attack creation because they've got to uh, um, put up a united front against the common enemy, which is creation, because they're both uh, atheists. Well, I guess Gould is not an atheist anymore. He's dead. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, um, Dawkins want, uh, believes in the slow and gradual changes, um, while Dawkins, uh, while Gould realized the fossil record does not support that, so he he proposed that evolution happened in jumps, um, and that's punctuated equilibria. But the point is, as Dawkins would say, you cannot get jumps by evolution. It does it, the evolution can only work genetically with natural selection if the changes are small. But then uh, Gould says, well, no, that the fossil record shows there are big jumps. So it couldn't have happened slowly. So I think they're both right. It couldn't have, evolution couldn't have been slow. It couldn't have been fast. It didn't, couldn't, didn't happen at all. <laughs> yeah, I know today it seems like, like uh, Dawkins and those guys really kind of go away from even pointing to the fossils and instead uh just try and point to DNA or homology or something like that. Homology's the usual but, thing now. Dawkins did have a chapter on the fossils in his book, but I mean uh it was extremely unconvincing because I mean okay, I think uh, I would never go so far as to say there are no intermediate forms because then they'll come up with Australopithecines or the Archaeopteryx or Tiktaalik. So I always say that um Darwin would have predicted innumerable missing links, and all evolutionists can find are a handful of very debatable ones. See, that way then it's, it's, people can't sort of come back and say, oh, you haven't heard of Archaeopteryx or whatever. No, I have heard of it, but I think it's very debatable, to say, um, to say the least. All these yeah. examples, uh, including Tiktaalik, which, which came out after my books were written, uh, but I covered it in my um, Greatest Hoax on Earth book, which you interviewed me about. That's right, that's right. Uh, well, I guess we can look at some of these of the supposed uh, uh, missing links in that. Chapter four is dealing with um, bird evolution. Let me let me get the number out here real quick uh, for mm-hmm. anyone who wants to call in. You can call in at seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. And uh, of course, you don't have to you don't have to be a Christian to to call in, or you don't have to agree with. Uh, agree with us to call in, but uh, I'd like to hear from you, so feel free to call in. It's chapter 4 here dealing with uh, with bird evolution. So I know a lot of the, the claims are about uh, dinosaurs evolving into birds. Can you talk a little bit yes. about that? Okay, that, that's become uh, the, the, the main paradigm now. I think when I was uh, writing my book the first time before, I've updated it a bit, of course, um, it, it was sort of uh, taking the, the, the imagination of the evolutionary community because it hasn't always been the belief uh, of the origin of birds. And there are still uh, quite um, well-informed dissenters from this paradigm, but it does seem to be the, the main thing. The point is, though, uh, again, how do you go from... Uh, creatures with very powerful, heavy hindquarters uh, to uh, birds which have quite dainty hindquarters, uh, the flying birds, and very strong um, chest muscles and and wings. Um, There's also a huge difference in the lung structure because the birds have the um, uh, one-way lung uh, um, system of airflow. They've got these uh, sacs and they have these uh, tubes which have the air going through one way 
uh, reptile lungs uh, actually have been found to have one-way flow, but it actually is a much is a, a bellows lung, but it's so well designed to give you a one-way flow without the system of tubes. So it's a, again a very different design of the bird lung and reptile lung. And then you got the idea of feathers. You see, reptiles have nothing like feathers. You see, they have scales which are folds in the skin, or feathers grow in a follicle. They have a slightly different type of keratin being used. You have the system of the, of, uh, the shafts and the barbs, and then you've got these barbules and the hooks, uh, which mean that the feathers become aerodynamic and waterproof and, and ideal for flight and lightweight. Uh, and reptiles have nothing like that. Uh, so, so a lot of different difference between the dinosaurs and the and the birds, and I mean, to go from one to the other, again, how do you get um, a lung that's sort of bellows like to become a lung that's a one-way uh, system of tubes without having a hole in the lung that would be detrimental to uh, the animal survival. And then again, right. uh, the dinosaurs need to have their powerful, uh, heavy, mu heavily muscular um, legs for running. So again, what, uh, to, to go to the bird, you're actually losing that that power. And until you can fly, what's, uh, what are you? Uh, what's the point of it? Because um, natural selection can't see ahead. It only does what you have now. It can't predict that in a few million years that you'll have descendants that are going to fly. No, it acts on the here and now. So the intermediates have to be good now. And if you've got something which actually is evolving smaller and spindlier legs, then it's not going to be good in the struggle for existence. What is what is some of the, the ones that they always go to as far as the uh, as intermediate fossils between dinosaurs and birds? What's some of the problems with that? Well, the Archaeopteryx is, is, a, is, a, is usually the one they have. But again, not only though I don't think it is an intermediate because it has wings like a pigeon, it has feathers like a like, uh, fully formed flight feathers. Like it has a weird tail, but it has um, the bird brain, it has the bird lung, it has the bird eye, the bird feathers. It's very much clearly a bird, not a reptile. And also, it's in the wrong place according to their own fossil dating. You see, the, the, the Archaeopteryx it was, is supposedly millions of years older than the feathered dinosaurs that supposedly evolved from. And there's another, another creature called Confucius Ornus, which even had a beak. It was a flying bird with a beak. And it's, again, according to evolutionary dating, it's older than the, the feathered dinosaurs they talk about. So that it's, they're in the wrong order. And you can't be um, younger um, than your grandchildren. Okay, great. Well, we have a caller, so we will uh, go to him. Real quick, uh, call us mm -hmm. ahead and state your name and where you're calling from. Okay, my name's Miguel, and I'm calling from Florida. Um, and Miguel, my buddy. How are you, Devin? <laughs> Good, go uh, right ahead. So I wanted, all right, so I wanted to ask Dr. Sephardi. Um, I actually uh, got to attend a creation conference over the summer, um, and some of the major presentations were regarding the soft tissue that's been found in some oh, yeah. dinosaur bones. And oh, so yeah. I just wanted to um, get y your opinion on that. And um, do you think this is, um, you know, legitimate? And um, also I've read some of the older creationist literature on it. And basically the claim is they're saying because these uh, bones and horns are being found in, in mud, um, 
it actually produces the conditions in which you would expect this kind of soft tissue to last for a very long time, specifically oh, no, no, no the, the, area. Very important uh, mm-hmm. discovery that, and again, this sort of came out sort of after my, the first editions of my books. Okay, in my later books, I talk about these um, these discoveries. Now, one thing which um, uh, have you heard of is, in fact, di- dinosaur have DNA. Some of the, the, the bones actually have DNA in them. Okay. And the DNA, we can measure how fast the DNA breaks down. Now, if you cool it down to minus 5 Celsius or 23 Fahrenheit, it would last about uh, under 7 million years, and it's completely fragmented. But then the test they found, the DNA in the T-Rex bone was quite clearly um, double helical. It actually was quite, it wasn't, it wasn't fully intact, but it was actually quite intact to form a double helix. And yet the dinosaurs are meant to be 10 times older than that maximum survival time of DNA, uh, at which time it's totally fragmented. And dinosaurs were meant to have lived in a warmer climate where DNA would break down even faster. So, I mean, finding DNA in dinosaur bone is a huge problem for the millions of years view. And, yes, we're aware of it, the, uh, the special pleading uh, by how, how these things could have um, lasted that long. But remember, uh, when Dr. Schweitzer was first discovering these, these um, examples, um, it was rejected because how could you have things like blood, uh, blood cells, proteins, and, and the like surviving 65 million years ago? So they were trying to find other things that they could be, but clearly not blood cells or, um, or proteins or blood vessels. And now that they, they can't escape the fact that, it's, that it's, it's what she claimed, they have to try and invent ways that could have survived the millions of years, which really don't uh, hold up uh, to scrutiny. And uh, creation.com has a number of articles uh, which refute some of the um, old old Earth claims about these things. All right, yeah, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Thanks so much. Creation.com, that's the the go-to place for all of this material, yeah. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for calling, Miguel. God bless you, my friend. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, that's good then. That's, I know that was kind of the, the, the big thing that's come out uh, with the with the uh, dinosaur uh, fossils with um, the DNA in that. So that's uh, that's very very interesting. Um, well, in fact, the CRSQ wrote had a, had an article devoted uh, an issue devoted to this, and, and a couple of chemists actually wrote about this idea of preservation, and they showed that the very preservation reactions they're proposing actually would break down certain things. And, of course, those certain things are actually found in those bones. So, again, it couldn't have been those, preserva- those so-called preservation reactions because it would have destroyed certain things. I mean, the, the, the um, Fenton reaction they propose is actually often used to destroy organic matter. So it, it does the wrong thing. I mean, from a chemical point of view, it doesn't make any, any sense. Right. Yeah, it's interesting to see how uh, some of the people are, are answering that. So uh, give the number out again here, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Uh, a little while back ago, I actually watched a debate between uh, P.Z. Myers and a guy. Oh by, yeah, oh dear is right. Uh, it's a guy by the name of Jeff Simmons, I think it is. I'm not okay, sure if you've seen that. Okay, he's a, I believe he was a doctor and he'd written a, a few books. And the okay. issue of whale evolution had came up. And, okay. Um, 
And P.C. Myers, of course, is very confident about uh, the evidence showing whale evolution. Can you talk to us okay, about that in the chapter? Right, yes. So. Right, yep. Um, now, see, once again, they're, they're a huge problem going from a land creature to a sea creature. So many things have to be changed. I think it's easy enough to gloss over what needs to be done to go from a fully land creature to a fully um, sea creature. And um, in my book, in fact, I had to, the, one of the early editions of my book, I had to update something on this thing called Pakisitas when they found more bones of the supposed intermediate. Um, and you see that they drew Pakisitas as an intermediate form because they only found a few bones of the skull and jaw and teeth, nothing below the neck, so they could draw this thing looking like a, like a, like a transitional form. But when they found more of the, the creature, they realized it was actually a fast-running land creature, not at all a transition. So, I mean, it's often the case you have a few fragments of bone, you can spin a story about them being intermediate. You find more of the creature, no, it's not intermediate. Wow. So have they kind of given up then on Pachycetus? Well, they try and they sort of downplay it a bit and, and talk about certain okay. ear structures. But again, again, since my book, my first book was written, okay, the, the National Academy of Science was saying that whales came from the Mesonicids. But since that book was written, I had to update my book, uh, now the whales are meant to have come from the artiodactyls. So it means all the evidence wow. where they, they threw at the kids, hang on, this is what whales have in common with the Mesonicids, that has to be thrown out the window because the, the genetics doesn't match. So it means right. that, that these common uh, um, these homologies were not homologies at all. They were homoplastic, which means that they, they, they are similar structures, but clearly not from a common ancestor. And unfortunately, things like whale evolution is full of homoplastic uh, structures, um, which means that they are not uh, explainable by inheritance from a common ancestor that had that structure. It's not possible because it changed their story since I wrote my book, my, the first edition of my book. Yeah, and, uh, and we'll we'll get into more of this in Refuting Evolution too. But I remember watching the PBS series Evolution when that had came yes. out. I remember reading your responses every every episode was awesome. But I remember that they were they were claiming that uh, because they had found up here a piece of a skull or something or the ear that therefore they thought it was uh, the the whale had evolved from a land animal like a wolf. Mm. Or something to that effect? Was that Pakistan oh, yeah. they were saying that about? Okay. It might have been actually. Yeah, refuting um, two was, was basically uh, was largely um, put together from responses to that PBS series, yes, and a Scientific American article. Uh, but the new edition um, the, with the green cover with the hammer uh, was updated in 2011, so um, it's a lot more up to date than the, pre the, the first edition was. Oh. Okay. Okay. Is there that uh, more more pages and stuff as well? I assume then. Well, I think we use uh, we we use a bit of quality paper um, with 245 pages, including the index. I forget how much the old one was, but it's got more stuff okay. in it than the previous one. Wonderful. I need to get need and to of course copy nine that. years more updated. So I mean, if it's from 2002 to 2011, that's quite a lot of uh, work has been done in some of those key areas since then. So I put a lot of that in. Wonderful. Uh, the the Ambocetus, um, right. looking at that, uh, it's, again, it's funny just to see the drawings that you see of these things uh, compared to the actual bone fragments. It's like they'd never put that in a museum, would they, of just the with the bones actually that were found. Well, so the artist has a considerable latitude in how to make the thing look. I mean, in fact, you can find you can do it with skull fossils. You can make the skull look more ape-like or more human-like, depending on what 
story you're trying to tell. Wow. There's some of these other creatures there. You can make them look like uh, like um, intermediate creatures, but are you really actually? Um, but is it really what they were like? Right. Uh, so those who are were, or would be touting Ambulocetus as a transitional form, what would you say is some of the problems with that particular uh, lake? Well, again, it just doesn't seem to. It, it fails to really bridge the, the the enormous gap you have between the the uh, what's needed for a fully aquatic creature and what's uh, needed for something which is really a land creature, but is not really uh, designed. But it's not really a. It couldn't be a, a fully aquatic creature. There's too many differences. And again, when you put them together, again you have the problem of things like Basilosaurus is no is not thought to be a, a an ancestor of modern whales. So you can put these things together. Uh, they're teaching about evolution. A guidebook uh, had these creatures in, in a row without telling you the Basilosaurus was ten times longer than the Ambulocetus, but you draw them the same size. You think, oh, here's a progression, but you drew them true to life. Oh, hang on, they're, they're different creatures. Okay. Yeah, I think I think PC Myers was saying that the whale evolution was one of the strongest uh, cases for Darwinian evolution. So he's got a problem. If that's the strongest case, I mean, he, he's he's really in trouble. Yeah. Uh, chapter six, uh, we look at the humans, images of God, mm-hmm. uh, or advanced apes. Um, that's, right. Of course, that's a that's a big contention, isn't it? Was that was that one of the big things when they were dealing with the Scopes trial? Uh, that oh, uh, the Scopes trial. It was it was uh, so much misinformation about the Scopes trial. I mean, people think of Inherit the Wind as though that was actually a real documentary of the Scopes trial, but it was a complete distortion of what actually happened there. And the thing is, um, even the missing links that I learned about at high school, I no longer thought to be that. I mean, I mean, I was taught in high school that Ramapithecus was an ancestor of human humans, and no evolutionists believe that today. Wow. And you think of the history of these supposed ancestors of humans, which are now uh, uh, demoted to side branches and not ancestral. And it seems what we have here are things which are either completely human or completely Australopithecine, and the Australopithecines are actually further away from humans and apes than we are from each other, you see. So actually there's a bigger gap between the Australopithecines and either apes and the chimps and humans. The humans and chimps are closer to each other than they are to the Australopithecines, so the the Australopithecines are not uh, an intermediate or ancestor. But a completely different type of creature with a huge, a very large, uh, wide face and powerful jaw muscles, but they're not uh, upright walkers in the human manner. Um, Lucy was seems to be a, an arboreal knuckle walk. You can tell again because it has fingers. The finger bones of phalanges were actually curved, just like a something to grasp trees all the time to grasp the branches. And then it had a bone in the wrist to lock. Uh, to lock the wrist, which is what you find in gorillas today who walk on their knuckles. So, so as she, on the ground, Lucy was a knuckle walker, but she was mainly a tree creature. So again, wow, not an ancestor to humans. Yeah, uh, you also hear the claim a lot of times about the uh, like ninety-eight point what is it, six percent uh, similar right. DNA. Yeah, talk maybe talk a little bit about that. 
Well, okay, I mean, that number seems to be dropping all the time because you found, um, again, since my books are written, that the Y chromosome is very, very different from the uh, chimp Y chromosome. That's what men have to make us men, you see, the Y chromosome. Um, but, in fact, it's so different, it doesn't look at all uh, similar. So when you talk about 98, 98% or whatever the number is now, it doesn't apply to the Y chromosome. And also, since we have 3 billion letters, a 98% similarity means 2% difference, which amounts to 60 million differences. So when you think of the, the enormous, the, the, the hugeness of our genome, a 2% difference is still an enormous number of changes, and they think that happened all in um, 5 million years ago, and you're supposed to get 60 million changes happening in 5 million years. That's not enough time even granting the evolutionary story to get that that difference between humans and apes. Right. So it's really not a not a very good argument with that. I guess Lucy Lucy, as you were saying, I think is the one that kinda uh is the one that most of them point to, I guess, is the strongest uh yeah. evidence for the intermediate, is that right? Yeah, I think so. But again, it, it seems to be a distinct type of creature that was an arboreal right. knuckle walker and not a not a human or not an upright um, walking thing. So definitely not a yeah. human ancestor. Yep. So the case there for for the human uh, evolution isn't very good either. So well, that's uh, the thing. But I think that's what a lot of people want to talk about because that's uh, it, it goes to where we come from. And of course, if you have human evolution, what happens to Adam and Eve? Because um, if evolution is true, it's a population of ape-like creatures that evolved into a population of human-like creatures, and there's no room for a single pair of humans being ancestors uh, of us all. So you have people like Francis Collins um, of Biologo saying there was never any real Adam and Eve. So that it becomes problematic for, for the Christian. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. Uh, let's, let's look real quick uh, before we take a, a quick break here. Uh, the design uh, argument there in Chapter 9, is the de design explanation le uh, legitimate? Talk a little yes. bit about what is the design argument and uh, how maybe has it changed since the days of, um, oh, I forget his name there. Paley? Uh, Paley, yeah. William Paley, maybe? Yeah, yep. Well, it's interesting. I just discovered that William Paley was very much an anti-slavery abolitionist as well. In some of his earlier, in one of his earlier books on on uh, morality, he was very much against the slave trade and wanted to see the end of it. It's quite interesting to see that earlier history. Um, but the point is, what we we find is there are certain um, features that we see, and everywhere where we know the origin of those features, it's an intelligent cause. So when we look at the living things and we see exactly the same features that the, uh, of the high information, we can deduce likewise that there is an intelligent cause behind that, 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 those same features. This is a case of real science using what we know to what we don't know. And, and the, the thing that, that we have in common that, that is high information, and I talk about what high information is, um, and it's not something like... Um, um, uh, and a, a, um, look, for instance, if you took a tornado uh, uh, into a jumbo jet, you'd create a junkyard. And the point is there are many more ways of being a junkyard than being a jumbo jet. Because a jumbo jet has loads of components, but they're also organized in a very specific way. 
and things don't happen that way. But things that you do get things like crystals. Now the point is crystals don't have much information. They are repeated structures. There's a very low information in, in crystals that's repeated over and over again. It's just like a statement like A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. That's just A, B plus repeat. Okay, but when you think of a, a, a letter sequence like in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, that clearly is a sequence that has information in it, but it's also not a regular sequence. There's nothing regular about T H E B E G I. You know, there's, there's nothing regular about it, but it's also nothing random about it. And uh, the features that we know are the result of intelligence when we read a book are also found in the proteins and the um, DNA of living things. There's clearly a message there. There's clearly high information there. It's not random, but it's also not uh, repetitive. And again, when we look at the, uh, the uh, book, we know there's an author behind it. So again, um, the, uh, the books of DNA, like, I mean, the information in, our, in each of our cells would fill up about a 1,000 Bible-sized books or about 200 wow. times the size of the IRS tax code, okay? Um, the point is that there's huge amounts of information there, and that's why we know there, there should be, a, we know there's an author for a book, a program for a program. And so what does it make you, when you look at the, the programs inside of living things, it should point to a master programmer. Yeah, master, master designer, that's exactly right. All right, folks, um, we are going to take a quick break. If you... Would like to call in and speak with Dr. Sarfani? Uh, the number to call is 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. We've got about uh, 30 minutes left, so feel free to call in and get your questions. When we come back, we'll be looking at uh, Dr. Sarfani's uh, second book in that series, Refuting Evolution 2. So stay with us. What is something that computers and humans have in common, which constantly needs upgrading in computers, but not in humans? The answer is software. You may not have realized you have software, but inside the nucleus of each of your cells, a program is written in the form of 3 billion DNA letters. Intelligent programmers write computer software, but what about living things? Evolutionists tell us that the information in the first living cell just appeared by itself with no intelligent input required. But is that possible? The answer is a resounding no. Even one of Australia's best-known scientists, Paul Davies, conceded that there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And perhaps that's why, in a New Scientist article, he lamented... How did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apolog- Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. It's no secret that philosophy has been given a bad rap by some in Christian circles. Why do you think that's the case? Well, bad philosophy needs a bad rap. Uh, and a lot of Christians, that's all they know. Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. Actually, there's a definite article of the in Greek. It's talking about a particular bad philosophy. It was kind of incipient Gnosticism that existed there. Christians have nothing to fear from a good philosophy. In fact, we need good philosophy to answer the bad philosophy, as C.S. Lewis said. So I think Christians need to get into philosophy because God 
commanded it because uh, the world uh, demands it and because the results confirm it. Uh, I can tell you any number of people who have been trained in philosophy and apologetics who have had great ministries and winning people to Christ who would not otherwise have been won to Christ. I have a whole file full of people who said I was an agnostic, I was an atheist, I read your book, uh, I appreciated the reasoning that was in it, and I've come to know uh, Christ, and I want to thank you for uh, writing that book. So the uh, proof of the pudding is in the uh, eating. They, it has good results. Uh, good philosophy has good results. You can't know error without studying truth. But you can't answer error without studying philosophy because you wouldn't go to a doctor who didn't study sickness. If you went to a doctor who said, what's wrong with that? He said, I got a pain in my apostat near my zorch or wherever you get pains. And he said, well, what would you like to know about health? He said, look, doctor, I'm, I'm dying. I got a pain. I don't want to know about health. I want to know, can you cure this sickness I've got? So you can know the truth, but if you don't know error, you don't know how to apply the truth to the error and when the people were in error. All right, folks, and we are back with Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. We are looking at his books, Refuting Evolution 1 and 2. And uh, Dr. Sarfati, I wanted to play a quick clip of uh, Richard Dawkins. Oh, yes. And uh, this is where he is, uh, I think, encouraging people to mock religion. I just would like your, your take on that. So I'll play this clip real quick. Now, at this point, I need to acknowledge the remarkable taboo against speaking ill of religion. And I'm going to do so in the words of the late Douglas Adams, a dear friend who, if he never came to TED, certainly should have been invited. He was? He was, good. I thought he must have been. He begins this speech, which was uh, tape recorded in Cambridge shortly before he died. He begins by explaining how science works through the testing of hypotheses that are framed to be vulnerable to disproof. And then he goes on, I quote, Religion doesn't seem to work like that. It has certain ideas at the heart of it which we call sacred or holy. What it means is, here is an idea or a notion that you're not allowed to say anything bad about. You're just not. Why not? Because you're not. <laughs> Why should it be that it's perfectly legitimate to support the Republicans or Democrats, this model of economics versus that versus that, Macintosh instead of Windows, but to have an opinion about how the universe began, about who created the universe, no, that's holy. So we are used to not challenging religious ideas. And it's very interesting how much of a furore Richard creates when he does it. He meant me, not that one. Everybody gets absolutely frantic about it because you're not allowed to say these things. Yet when you look at it rationally, there is no reason why those ideas shouldn't be as open to debate as any other, except that we've agreed somehow between us that they shouldn't be. And that's the end of the quote from Douglas. In my view, not only is, is science corrosive to religion, religion is corrosive to science. It teaches people to be satisfied 
with trivial, supernatural, non-explanations and blinds them to the wonderful, real explanations that we have within our grasp. It teaches them to accept authority, revelation and faith instead of always insisting on evidence. Now there's a typical... Oh, we'll leave it there. I can't stomach much more of it. But uh, talk to us, Dr. Sarfati. What's, uh, what, are, what are some of the errors that you see in that? Uh, well, I mean, it's interesting. He's a, he's a scientist, and he goes to a, 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 a comedian for his authority on um, on science and religion. It's quite interesting. It doesn't make, make say much of his own case. quotes non-scientists for his authority. And, of course, the, the usual misunderstandings of the um, honorable um, history of, of science within the Christian worldview, how the Christian worldview was actually was what was responsible for getting the scientific endeavor off the ground. So his idea that somehow it's hostile to religion, it fails logically and fails historically. He doesn't know what he's talking about. In fact, his own university was founded in, in um, the Middle Ages by Christians. Christians are the founders of the university in the so-called Dark Ages, his own, own university included. So really, uh, his, he's totally lacking in historical perspective. And then again, the usual, as you guys obviously know, you listen to Apologia Radio, um, the idea that faith is somehow divorced from reason and evidence. And that's just not the biblical faith. Right. Again, he misrepresents what faith means in the biblical context. That's typical of the atheists. They don't seem to be care about what, what actually the Bible, what the Bible and Christians actually say about faith. They've got their own uh, view of faith. And then it comes to well, we mustn't question authority, but you try questioning any evolutionary authority and see how far you get. Uh, you might lose your job. You might be uh, expelled from university if you dare question the, the high priests of materialism. That's good. That's exactly what I was was thinking as well. You know, we're we're told uh, you can't question something as sacred as religion, but and and that's the thing. Even with the, with Dawkins and Gold, uh, people will point that out, and people like Gene Scott will say, "Well, but but they they're you know they agree that evolution is true, mm. <laughs> regardless if the models both contradict each other. They both agree that, exactly. and that's Usually all that matters, that you know." And that's the thing with evolution. It seems to be able to explain mutually incompatible states of affairs. That's uh, so, uh, so much for being testable and falsifiable. Um, and so, again, totally naive view, naive view of philosophy of science and the history of science. And, and really that's typical of his uh, general approach. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Refuting evolution, too. So, I, you know, I remember uh, walking through the grocery store and... I was really getting into creation science at the time, and I remember seeing this uh, article, Scientific American. It had the red cover, mm-hmm. and uh, on the top of it, I think it was was it 15 ways or something like that. Uh, to, I think 15 ounces to creationist nonsense or something. That's it. Yep, that's it. Yeah. So when that came out, I wrote a detailed web uh, response with a lot of detail, and just like it, it was very uh, close in time to that PBS series. Now I was actually seconded to Answers in Genesis in the United States for five weeks because of a conference there, and they kept me over there uh, so I could write uh, rebuttal because I'm a night owl, all chess master night owls, and therefore I could stay up to three in the morning writing rebuttals. So then we could be checked in Australia and then put on the web the very next morning. So basically next day rebuttals to that series. And then that was wow. um, combined into Refuting Evolution 2. That's the history of that book. Wow. that's a, And it is such a great book. I, 
I just love both of these books uh, in the series. Uh, chapter one talks about uh, you've got the the argument that they give that creationism is religion, not science. Boy, we hear that all day, every day, don't we? We do, and they're ignoring the, the strong religious, quasi-religious, and certainly philosophical underpinnings of naturalism or materialism that, that, un, that underpins evolutionary ideas. It's a faith position that everything made itself, and evolution is basically the scientific justification for materialism. So it's so, so important to, 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 to get this, rid of this idea that somehow it's a science versus religion battle. That is just not true. Yeah, you've got a quote here from uh, Rennie, uh, the guy who was the editor-in-chief. I don't know if he still is or not, but uh, he wrote, uh, Creation science is a contradiction in terms. A central tenet of modern science is methodological naturalism. It seeks to explain mm-hmm. the universe purely in terms of observed or testable natural mechanisms. Why would, cre- would, would you say that creation science rejects methodological naturalism? I'd say when it comes to historical one-off things, I would say we have to. When it comes to the operational science, as I said, they're the science of that, that we really respect today is the operational science, the observational science that put me on the moon and cures diseases. Now, that's something where I would expect uh, naturalism to be pretty much true because, again, of what sort of God we believe. We believe the God of the Bible. He's not capricious. He actually created in six days. He's finished his creation, you see. He now right, upholds right. the creation. Because he's a God of order, he's not the author of confusion, he's a divine lawmaker, he upholds things in a regular, repeatable way. And that is what motivated scientists in the Middle Ages and the Reformation times to find out how God is upholding his creation. And they, they call them natural law, was the, the, our description of God's upholding principles. Okay, um, so I'd say when it comes to, to uh, uh, operational science, I don't think that there's going to be any deviation from the, the natural uh, way of things. But when it comes to creation, though, um, things that happened in the past, um, I think even natural right. itself is, it always goes back to there's a beginning uh, point there. there it, it hasn't existed forever. So at, at some point, uh, the, the, the space-time-matter universe must have come into being. And so, so therefore, the complete um, um, naturalism just fails uh, when, it, when, we, when we talk about the past. And so that's why creation is all often distinguished between the operational science and the historical science. And evolutionists make the distinction too, by the way. It's not just a creationist in, um, invention. Leading evolutionists have understood that evolution is different from physics and chemistry because it deals with history. Right, and it should be pointed out that, that you have a, a doctorate in, in chemistry, right? Exactly. I, I don't assume that, that God, the God of the Bible, is going to interview him in my chemistry lab. Well, I say he's upholding right. everything uh, moment by moment. That's, that's what he's doing. He's upholding things in a regular way, and therefore right. um, I can do science. The thing is, the, the, the naturalists have no justification for regularity in nature. It doesn't follow from naturalism. It has to be assumed. It's not only naturalism, but also regularity they have to assume. So it's actually not quite true to say it's just methodological naturalism. It's methodological naturalism plus uh, an order behind the cosmos. Yeah. And yeah. It comes from the that's... biblical worldview. It doesn't come from the evolutionary worldview. You cannot do an experiment to prove naturalism or to prove an orderly universe. 
because the experiments you do are going to presuppose the order and um, regularity of, of what you're trying to prove. You can't uh, you can't assume what you're trying to prove by speaking the question. Yeah, that uh, that debate with uh, Dr. William Lane Craig and Peter Atkins, uh, if you've ever mm-hmm. seen that, where Atkins is asking him to to name something that science can't prove, and then Dr. Craig gives like five different things <laughs> that uh, yeah, they well, can't Craig prove. And, and that can, as common with a lot of the atheistic scientists, is quite clueless about logic and philosophy. I mean, he's a good scientist in his own area because he wrote my physical chemistry textbook that I, that I use throughout, you know, throughout my university. So I'm not knocking his, oh. his physical chemistry. He, he's a great physical chemist, but a lousy philosopher. Very bad. You yeah. cannot I'm escape philosophy because he had you in, plane in, in between. It's all, you cannot escape philosophy. Right. Uh, you have a section here where he's talking, uh, Rennie's going after intelligentism. Maybe um, take a second to, to explain the difference between um, intelligent design and um, and creationism. I know the I know the two overlap. Uh, you know, we're having Stephen Meyer on at the end of the end of the month here uh, as well. So just talk about some of the differences, though. Okay, I, mean, I think it's, uh, what we have in common is I think the intelligent design, uh, the modern one, it was actually founded by the young earth creationist uh, Dr. Wilder Smith. He was the one who first pointed out the importance of information, uh, which has become so important. And we have the same idea that uh, if we have um, a specified complexity or information content, it goes to intelligent source. The problem is the intelligent design movement as a movement doesn't have a history. That's the problem. They have no history. And therefore, evolutionists mm-hmm. at the time of Darwin can say, well, why would God make something that hurt something else? And why would God make something so incompetently that it went extinct? You see, the, if you have the fall and the flood, we have answers to both of those. But if you want to, the intelligent design movement wants to um, not use the Bible. So they're, they're trying to fight with one hand tied behind their back. It doesn't work. It didn't work. But Darwin's main opponents were intelligent design people, not by that name, but that's what they were. But Darwin could always say, well, why would God make a, 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 something which only eats uh, lives by eating something else? Right, absolutely. That's, it. that's exactly the, I think, the issue. Um, in, in chapter, I believe it's chapter 2, you're kind of moving away from that. That's uh, that's an important section again, kind of on the really the presuppositions there. Uh, is evolution compatible uh, with Christianity? I know we talked a little bit about that, but I wanted you to talk um, about Ken Miller. Maybe I know his book, uh, Finding Darwin's mm. God. Uh, have you have you interacted with him personally? Or I, well, I was a co-author of a review of that book, and it's a very very confused book. I mean, the atheists love it. Uh, because of the way he attacks um, uh, creation, but then they, they, they have contempt for the way he tries to to, to um, add God into the mix somehow. It becomes very vague and confused. And a lot of the examples are unreliable. I mean, that's, that's the thing. We, we wrote a review pointing out some of the unreliability and, and how much of, of, of the scriptural account he has to do jettison to, to, to keep evolution. It's really quite satisfying yeah. how much of, of the uh, of the the Bible he, he just can't escape. Not just a few parts of Genesis. I mean, a lot of the New Testament has to be thrown out of the window uh, if uh, evolution is true. 
And then he talks about bad design in nature, and the example he gives is the, is the eye wide, wide backwards. And that's a, that should be a, a totally abandoned now because uh, we've found right. very good reasons why the eye is wired the way it is, and it's actually a very fine design feature. Yeah, so... That's why we talk about the eyes of an eagle, or eyes like a hawk, because uh, the backward eyes are actually become a very good for very sharp, accurate vision, which is just not possible otherwise. I mean, octopuses don't see as well as we do, and certainly not as well as the hawk or the eagle. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I know he does point to the to the bad design. I remember watching the firing line with when they did with Philip Johnson and Baby okay. and. And all yeah. them, and I remember him him kind of going to that a lot. Uh, okay, I think he'd be sounding. The ID people can get behind me and say, "Well, this is actually not bad design." But then when you start to say, "Well, this is designed to hurt something else," if you haven't got the biblical history, it becomes a bit harder to defend against that because we know that some things um, oh. deteriorated from their perfection. And so we might find something which are no longer as good as they were, and because of the fall, now some things hurt other things, and some things didn't survive the flood. Right. So I think the ID movement is, is good in, in many ways, but it's also deficient in its lack of history. One of the things that you also talk about in this chapter towards the end, and I remember watching this, I think it was episode 7, uh, of yeah. the PBS show of, with Nathan. Uh, and you yeah. say on this, Nathan's upbringing is sadly typical of the lack of apologetic teaching uh, in the churches. And I remember I remember watching him in that show interact with his parents. And um, mm-hmm. parents, parents didn't really seem to really know uh, how to really tackle some of those questions. Um I mean, in, in my book, yeah. I did say, to be fair, we can't know that some of the good arguments weren't edited out. Uh, okay, so oh, I, I just don't trust to be honest about it. But if you take it at face value, I'm afraid this is typical of a lot of church families. They know what they believe, but they don't know how to believe it and why they believe it. And that's something I think Craig is good at pointing out, um, that we can know Christianity is true in our hearts or whatever, but how do you show it's true? And that's where apologetics comes into things. How do we show it? And that's something we have trying to deal with uh, pastors who say, well, why do we need you guys? Because we believe this already. Then I point out, well, okay, can you defend why you believe it? And do your children believe this? Yeah. And when you when you go to a church and you find there's a lot of gray hair, uh, there's nothing but uh, but silver hair in the audience, no offense, and where are the young people? I wonder what's happened to those young people. Okay, so there are problems there, and maybe um, this was a realistic um, account of uh, parents who don't really know how to answer what their kids have been taught, and sadly what they've been taught at a supposedly Christian university too. Yeah, that's you see that over, over and over. Yeah, quick question for you because I've thought about this, and I just I just want your your thoughts on this. So I, I absolutely do not believe evolution or anything like that as a younger sure. creationist but um, a lot of times I think people use it though as though if, if biological evolution were true that would somehow prove God does not exist and I think uh, I, the evolution debate is very important for sure but yeah. I think you first have to talk about how does the universe come into existence uh, the mm-hmm. fine-tuning of the universe. I remember when Craig and Zindler were doing this debate, and Zindler as a oh, biologist yeah. kept pressing him on it, and Craig actually used the fine-tuning argument and said even if evolution was true, 
uh, it would actually be an argument for the existence of God uh, because mm. of the, the, I think the fine Honestly, I think that's stretch, to be honest. Um, I think uh, Craig is very good on the things of the Kalam cosmological argument, the resurrection of Christ, the source of, of, uh, of uh, morality and ethics. He does that so well, and the atheists can't beat him. They've got uh, ample chance to prepare. They still can't beat him. I mean, imagine a chess right. master who does the same opening every time, uh, has the same strategy every time he still beats his opponents. Uh, at the point, he's very weak on things like the age of, of the universe and and evolution, because, yeah. because it's a case of, of what God do you believe in? I mean, the God of the Bible is not the God of evolution, is not the God that um, um, wipes out whole species just for the heck of it. I mean, the, the God of the Bible is very clear that death is the punishment for sin and not the way he originally made things. It's, a, it's, the, it's called the last enemy. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, evolution cannot escape. That, that it, yeah. it relies on death and cruelty and famine and disease as as the process of making things. When you think of the evolutionists, like, like Jacques Monod said, well, when you think evolution is, is the most wasteful and cruel, inefficient process you could think of, and why would you as a Christian want to believe God created this way? Right. Yeah. Well, he's no, that is, is, a, is a village atheist. He, he's, he's not the, anywhere near up to Craig's standards. I wouldn't expect him to, to actually uh, do that very well, but... Um, I can imagine a more sophisticated atheist might um, might point that out, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think, uh, and I'm a, I, I'm totally in agreement with you. I do think it's a it's a big issue, um, but I think uh, I think you have to. I think the before the atheist can just say if evolution is true, therefore God doesn't exist. There's a lot of things that have to be answered first. The, the origin. Well, yeah, of the they haven't got a clue about how life could come from non-living chemicals. They haven't a clue right. how matter, uh, something could come from nothing. The Big Bang uh, said nothing exploded and became everything. So they've got a whole lot of unanswered questions. They can't explain the origin of morality and ethics. I mean, Craig is right about all those. Right, right. Good stuff. Okay, uh, chapter. I believe it's chapter three here. Uh, the that let's see. Uh, argument evolution is true science, not just a theory. So I know you've written this article, uh, arguments creationists should not use. I know that's one of the arguments you, you, you or one of the things you say in there, Christians shouldn't mm. say, isn't it? That's Appendix Chapter 2 of Refuting 2 as well. Yeah. I think yeah, I, I really the, want to see uh, creationists, Christian apologetics in general, being familiar with the arguments that we should not use. It doesn't help our cause at all if we use dud arguments. You see, um, that's why we've got so many good arguments. Why use the dud, dud ones? So that, that's why I think it's an important thing to actually um, really understand the don't use page uh, appendix in this. And one of them, you see, uh, when it comes to theory, you see, scientists use the word theory to have something which is actually quite well supported by the evidence. I don't think evolution deserves to be called a theory. It is right. too weak and, and evidence-free to deserve the title of theory. I think, I think calling evolution as a theory it elevates it to far more than it deserves. Wow. When you think of the way we, we talk about the theory of gravity, the theory of relativity, uh, the theory of electromagnetism, these are all good theories. They're, they're well supported by the evidence. Evolution is not. It's a conjecture. It's a hypothesis, not a theory. I like, I like that. That's good. Not strong enough to even be the meet the – that's a lot of evidence that has to be met or it is considered a theory. 
Yeah. Uh, real quick, let's do this. Let's talk about uh, in chapter uh, ten. Real quick, talk about irreducible complexity, and then I want you to talk about your the new book you just wrote on Genesis. Okay. See, I think the irreducible complexity, or as uh, John Sanford likes to call it, a, a functionality threshold, which is more on the line of, of Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle and the final cause of teleological. It's designed for a certain function, and you, if you haven't got um, a minimal level of functionality, it won't work at all. So it's a functionality threshold is a more teleological way of, of talking about irreducible complexity, which is more like the, um, wow. I guess the um, formal cause uh, rather than the, 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 the final cause, okay? But the thing is... Again, when we see examples of irreducible complexity in everyday life, and we don't know, uh, if we do know the cause of this irreducible complexity, we know it's an intelligent source. So when we, we find exactly the same concept um, in living things, we should also be able to say, well, that also has an intelligent source. Because there are certain things like motives. J.B.S. Haldane, a famous Marxist evolutionist in the first half of the um, 20th century mainly, he said natural selection could not work to produce a wheel because unless the wheel is fully formed, it won't work at all. So natural selection cannot uh, um, build you a half wheel. It's no good to you. It's no good unless it's a whole wheel. So that is irreducibly complex. It's either a whole wheel or it's useless. But now, of course, we find things which are wheels. We find wheels, motors in living things. So see, uh, from what Holbein said was a falsification test of evolution, wheels, we've found those. So that's an example of irreducible complexity, the the, the motors we find. Again, a motor is not going to work until you've got a lot of different parts working together because the parts themselves, there's no reason to select for a component because a component has no advantage to anything unless it's part of the entire system. Right. The thing is, the natural selection assumes that every stage in the process provides an advantage to the creature. But all of the things that we see... There's no advantage to any of the stages unless the whole thing is fully formed. And that, that's the, the concept that Michael B. he talked about with irreducible complexity. Okay, great. Hmm. Um, take a, take, take a, a minute or two and talk about the, the new book that you've just written. Okay, now, this is a commentary on Genesis 1 to 11 called the Genesis Account. It's almost 800 pages worth. Wow. We found it was actually very. We were long overdue for a commentary that discusses the theology, um, the Christian relevance, um, the history, and the science um, of the Book of Genesis. Because I mean, um, we have we have the Genesis record, very good for its time, but it's almost forty years old now. Right, right. So a lot of things are a bit out of date in that one. So it's was, it was high time we had something which is a cutting edge science, but also goes a bit more into depth about the Hebrew how all the Christian doctrines uh, have their, their their foundation in the early chapters of Genesis. I mean, you can trace, say, the virgin birth, the virgin conception of Christ. You go back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman would be the Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman is a prophecy of the virginal conception, you see. So all the doctrines of Christianity go back to um, the early chapters of Genesis. And in working forward... If, uh, if you, and that was that's working forward from Genesis, but working backwards, you look at the way the rest of the Bible understands Genesis, and it always takes it as straightforward history. The uh, Jesus, 
and the apostles, uh, all through to Genesis, people, the events of real events, and even the order of events was relevant to the, the writers of the New Testament. So, um, And then I talk about some of the scientific justifications for... Um, for, for the creation uh, and the flood, I mean, the chapter on the evidence for a young earth, a chapter on the evidence for a global flood, um, explanation about uh, speciation from from the uh, art creatures, um, how um, life has amazing information. I talk about some of the, the um, cutting edge discoveries about DNA and and molecular biology and information. Yeah, we will, we will definitely. Of, uh, I go into bit more detail about how the church has historically understood Genesis as well, because uh, I think um, the Hugh Ross has been making up stories about how the uh, early church believed in long creation days. So I'm very thorough in going through things. Well, I mean, I'm not thorough, cause, but I, I do cite a lot of the, the of what Josephus thought, what the church fathers thought, what the medieval scholars like Thomas Aquinas thought, uh, Reformation scholars, and how they all understood Genesis to be a straightforward history. I mean, I think it's probably the first uh, of our books that, that that cites Thomas Aquinas quite a lot, for instance. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's, I know it's one of my one of my favorites there. So that that's really cool that uh, that uh, Thomas Aquinas held that. So that's really really neat. But yeah, uh, I really say creation very clearly. I mean, you can't kind of get around that. Now, yeah, I had heard at one time he believed that, or he thought maybe the universe was eternal, or maybe he thought that for you couldn't prove philosophically it wasn't, but yeah. uh, theologically he believed it or something like that. Yeah. Oh, but he he, he well, got sections on the days of creation quite clearly saying they're twenty-four hour days. Wonderful, that's great. I'm really looking forward to getting that book, and uh, we'll just have you back on to do a whole show. On that book, I think that'd be that'd, that'd be, be great. Fun. It sounds like a very unique type of commentary where you're actually uh, engaging in the theology and the science. So that would be really good. Seems to have good reviews so far, and it had a forward by a, a head of Old Testament, um, Dr. Robert McCabe. So hopefully the Hebrew um, is accurate in it as well. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we will put up a link for that. Uh, on our page, friends, you guys can check out the book uh, there, and uh, we'll put up the links to his other books. Really recommend them. He is, he's hands down my favorite uh, creation scientist. So, Dr. Sarfati, Thank thanks for coming on the show, and uh, hope, to, hope to have you on again soon. Thanks for it's all you do. I name Devin. really, really look up to you a lot. I appreciate all that you do. And all the best for you, the, the, the continued success of your program, too. Wonderful. Thank you, and God bless. God bless you. Bye-bye. All right, folks, join us next week. We will have uh, Jay Warner Wallace, and we'll be looking at his new book, God's Crime Scene, as well as uh, be looking at philosophy and science. So thanks again for joining us, and God bless.